The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Sizu Mpofu Walsh, postdoctoral fellow here at Wiser, and welcome to the Wiser Podcast. In this week's episode, we present part two of our mini-series on the work of Botswanan artist Meleko Mohosi. The series is led by Shoni Pamukwena of Wiser. Last week, she discussed aspects of Mohosi's paintings, including his depictions of intimacy and quotidian life, his incorporation of figures of black internationalism, and the ideas of diaspora that emerge from his work. In today's episode, Mukwena speaks to the artist himself, in a wide-ranging and fascinating discussion, taking up many of the issues introduced in last week's episode from part one. The musical interlude features Dexter Gordon's song You've Changed from the 1961 album Doin' All Right. The episode is part of a longer recording. We take up the conversation part of the way in as the nub gets going. Hello? Yes, I'm still here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you kind of cut off there. Yes, I, 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 think, I think both. I think, um, you know, especially for, for someone like Frederick Douglass, who, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a, uh, an academic. I really need to make that clear. I haven't read, um, you know, all of his work. So what, what I will say comes from a very um, particular position of an amateur reader, you know, engaging with his work. So I, I would say, um, you know, it is both. You know, when you look at someone like, um, whether it's Du Bois or it's Frederick Douglass, um, uh, James Baldwin and so forth, you know, these um, really important figures tend to be looked through identitarian politics. And, and what they're saying seems to kind of... Um, you know, be pigeonholed in very specific ways. So, I mean, just the, the, the philosophies of, of of Frederick Douglass, I think Angela Davis has, has written a lot more about this. And, and um, you know, she, she's, she's been teaching Frederick Douglass since the 60s, I think. So, so I think even just beyond the idea of blackness and looking at his work through identitarian politics, I mean, what he has to say about aesthetics and philosophy is really, really important and relevant outside of him being um, identified or interpolated as a black subject. And so I think um, boys thinking about him not just as, as, a, as, as an orator, not just as a really important African-American historical figure, but also uh, just purely as an intellectual, right? Um, I think the, these are all important. So I, I try to, to, to ask both those questions of how do these subjects enter history how do we remember them? How are they, how are they interpolated within our understanding of the idea of subjecthood and, and identity politics? Um, you know, and, and if we can try to pass out and see you know, the different ways in which they, they, the different and complex ways in which they contributed to, um, you know, to history and, and how we understand, um, you know, politics, for example, or, or the ideas of resistance when it comes to someone like Harriet Tubman. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in, in that, but also um, as, as a, someone from Botswana who, whose history is very removed from um, these figures, you know, I'm trying to, to um, you know, and, and I use other, other figures as well. I've, I've used um, a lot of images by Steve Biko, a lot of images, obviously, you know, um, Chris Honey and Mandela and Winnie Mandela and, and, and so forth. So I, I try to merge different histories um, and then really kind of offer, offer uh, uh, you know, I was, I was very taken by, by how you, you put it in, in, in your text of, of um, you know, thinking about uh, black internationalism or, or a particular kind of pan-Africanism. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, to see which which right? I forgot who you mentioned. Who who kind of coined that that um, uh, black internationalism? It's, I think it's from an uh, essay. Yes, Jane Nadal from the twenties. Yes, she 
text that I also used to so I used to teach when I taught at Columbia University I used to teach a course um, called African civilizations and I mean at the at the most basic level we we, we often used to not know whether to call it African civilization in the singular or African civilizations in the plural. But what the course was supposed to achieve was exactly this idea of introducing um, students who are not specializing in African history or African studies to the great texts of the African continent and the African diaspora. And that was one of the texts we used to use as a kind of um, entry into writing or political writing by women, which is not something that uh, many young uh, undergraduates would have come in, into contact with. So, I mean, it's a very, very short text, but in it, essentially, uh, Jane Nadal, who was one of the sort of Francophone um, intellectuals, um, her and her sister had a salon, I think in Paris, um, and all the intellectuals of the day from Fanon to Sartre uh, to Simone de Beauvoir, I think at some point had contact with the Nadal sisters. And um, that text is, is, is her essentially pointing out that all over the world there is a rising sort of spirit of black uh, consciousness, uh, black personality, negritude, etc. And that it's most importantly the youth who are coming together in this new spirit. And so she uses the term black internationalism. But what is interesting about the text and something that I think used to often surprise our students was that she includes Latin America. And normally when people think about the black diaspora, they don't often think about Latin America as being part of the black diaspora. And it's a very uh, interesting exclusion because actually from a, um, a, a history of slavery, from a, a quantitative perspective, uh, the largest number of enslaved people actually ended up in, in Latin America. So people often don't realize how much of Latin America has also been part of the transatlantic dialogue of diaspora. So that's what is interesting about that text. But I also, as I say, I, it, I first used it really as part of my teaching in African, African civilization. And now I go back to it when people discuss um, other new forms of um, black awareness and being woke and and I mean I, I sort of remi I remind <laughs> I use it to remind people that you know those concepts ex pre-exist the, the sort of what one would call it the beginning of the 21st century I don't know how you feel but to me, it almost feels like the beginning of the 21st century has unleashed a lot of sort of, it's almost like emotional, psychological and political energy that was left over in some ways from the 20th century, you know, from the ideological fallouts of the end of the Cold War. It seemed as if when the Cold War ended, uh, people didn't quite digest what that meant from an ideological perspective. And now, it's as if everyone is looking for an ideology for the 21st century. So almost in that Du Boisian way, you know, in the way that Du Bois described, um, uh, you know, the 20th century as almost the century of the color line. And now it's almost like people are looking for a similar kind of um, overarching ideological concept. And so I often use those kinds of texts to remind people that actually, even in the 21st century, not everyone was debating, let's say, African nationalism or pan-Africanism, at least not in those, in those terms. They were using other terms. And I think the idea of a black international, for me, is very appealing because it, 
it sort of almost um, embodies the idea that as an African or as a person of color, wherever you are, you in some ways represent people of color. It doesn't have to be a particular location. It doesn't have to be in Africa. It doesn't have to be in North America. It doesn't have to be in Europe. It could be in Asia. It could be in Latin America. It could be in Australasia, it could be in the, you know, in the Middle East, it doesn't matter. So I, I think I like that text for that reason, that it, it makes it a global movement rather than just a movement within visible forms of diaspora. Yes, and, and, and I think that's why I, I really appreciated you tying to to some of the work that I was I was thinking about, you know, whether it was images of Frederick Douglass and, um, and and so forth because I I mean for for the last couple of years maybe the last five or six years you know I've been researching and thinking about Pan-Africanism and, and, and it's, it's not so much to to kind of uh, resuscitate uh, that romanticism around around blackness or Africanicity but it was it was really to try and um, I guess connect um, different strands of blackness or histories around blackness to um, uh, to the idea of, of, of anti-racism because I think at least to me when we talk about anti-racism like when it's level towards the black subject my, my hope was always that it should be geared towards um, black consciousness, which, which in, in a kind of reduced form, you know, is about working towards some kind of self-determination for, for, you know, subjects who identify as African or, or of the African diaspora. So I think this this question of, um, and, 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 I, and I, so I don't want to call it agency because agency is such a cliche and overused words, but I think, you know, self-determination. Um, and recognition of of these subjects who might identify as black um, isn't important, but there's also what I'm what I'm learning from um, what I'm learning from you know talking to students and and other artists is that with the you know younger generation of artists, there's a movement towards. Uh, I mean, in the early 2000s, there was obviously post-black. Um, post-black ideas around aesthetics, you know, uh, kind of spearheaded by uh, Thelma Golden um, and, and the exhibitions that, that she did around, um, I think it was, uh, uh, I forget the four Fs, but, you know, she, she kind of uh, propelled this idea of, of artists who identified as, as post-black. But then in recent times, there's the idea of you know, people going towards Glyphosant and this idea of opaqueness, right? So, so there is always, at least to me, um, my investment and movement towards a kind of Pan-Africanism or, or recuperating ideas of black consciousness as, as, a, as part of the uh, toolbox for anti-racism um, and working towards what you, what, you know, this idea of black internationalism. But then on the other side, there is a resistance to that, which is the the, the, the desire um, or demand for opaqueness, right? That there are people and communities and artists who want to be to have the freedom to to not be identifiable in any in any kind of specific identitarian or identity. Um, uh, matrix, right? So, so I think there is this push towards opaqueness um, or opacity, um, you know, that that, that I, I've, I've noticed. I, so again, I haven't read a lot of Glissant, and I also haven't read a lot of Fred Moten, because a lot of people also go through the, the idea of the undercommons and, and so forth. So I, again, I'm a painter, so I'm I'm not an academic. I don't know much of that, but. Um, there's like these this field of forces between um, you know at least to me my desire for for a kind of black internationalism but then there is also on the other hand the the resistance to it um, which is a desire for opaqueness or opacity um, and, and a kind of resistance to to you know um, 
particular tropes of identity politics. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's in, in literature, one of the people that I can think of is a novelist and a storyteller called Helen Oyeyemi. And Helen Oyeyemi, I think, is of Ghanaian descent, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. But she she also writes just stories. She sort of refuses to be identified as an African writer, um, in that sense that she doesn't want to write stories with just black characters or stories that are just about Africa. Or, or, or yeah, I mean, you, you know, she. She's one of the people that I, I read um, regularly, just so I can feel also that, that uh, relief in some ways of just reading someone who's a good storyteller. And then I'm, um, I'm now gonna forget, I think Pharaoh Sanders recently did an album like of sort of jazz um, meeting electronic music and it's, a, it's also a very, very beautiful, um, it, it's sort of, it's, it's like a perfect uh, accompaniment to the history of jazz because it says something about how jazz is almost present in every genre of music. Um, I don't know if you've listened to it, I've totally now forgotten. Um, and it's also got um, on the cover, this, uh, so I, I don't know why I didn't think about this before interviewing you because then I would have remembered. There's a, an Ethiopian artist um, who um, I think left Ethiopia in the, or her parents left Ethiopia in the 70s. And her, her work is on the, is on the cover of that, of that album. So to me, it's almost like a, a perfect expression perhaps of what we're talking about, this sort of um, maybe raising the question of what is the end game, you know, as people of color, as Africans, as black people, ultimately, what is the, what is the emotional state that we want to be in that expresses that, that freedom? Um, and I think even Frederick Douglass in his time was grappling with that, you know, as he aged and people started to, a younger generation, so one of the things I loved about reading his biography is exactly that you see that as he gets, as he becomes older and a younger generation of militant uh, black people comes up, he sort of then becomes almost like the voice of reason where he's like, hold on, you know, we've been fighting this fight for several decades now. You can't imagine that you're just gonna suddenly win it's not going to happen like that. Um, and it's not because he was threatened by their radicalism. Um, it's more the fact that he was just pointing out the reality that actually it's almost like you have to know the destination before you set out on the, on the journey. And I, maybe I'm misinterpreting Frederick Douglass, but it's almost like he was saying freedom isn't just about contesting racism, but it's also about being able to describe in the fullest possible way what it is that you are actually attempting to achieve. You know, the kind of, um, it's not even contentment, the kind of ease, I would say, um, as, a, as, a, as a person of color, as a black person, that you are attempting to get to, where you no longer feel that every question about race has to be directed at you or that you have to respond to every question that you can just say to people, well, why can't you use your own um, understanding of the history of the world? Why do I have to be the race person? So I think in some ways by the end of his life, he was sort of pointing to that moment in which as black people and people of color, we don't always have to feel that we have to be the race, the race person. Because you know he was also a feminist, so he would point out some of those things and say, you know, there are other issues that also need to be attended to, um, and we can do all of those things at the same time. It doesn't just have to be this victory over um, racism. So I don't know what what you yeah. think, but yeah, for me those are the people. 
listening to that Pharaoh Sanders album and then also I think reading uh, novelists like Helen Oyeyemi makes me sort of think about um, what the end game is. Absolutely, and, and, and I guess this, this maybe comes back to to some of um, you know, how, how I'm thinking about aesthetics or, or different spaces, because I think maybe, um, again, the, the, the compelling argument towards something like opacity or towards, um, you know, towards uh, untangling blackness from from its politics and its histories um, to, to, to allow the, the subject to you know, freedom to to identify with whatever might uh, might suit them at, at a specific moment, and and um, you know, and that's and to that extent, when I think about you know representation, like um, and you, you kind of referred to this at, at some point in in the text with ideas of intimate spaces, because I think there is there's a level of uh, privilege that has to be there in order to be able to to experience and enjoy um intimacy right so i so i think um you know not intimacy kind of emotionally but intimacy both intellectually and critically uh and the kind of intimacy that we have as artists right so for myself you know for example um there's a level of intimacy that i have to have with the discourse of of painting in order for me to enter the discourse and feel that I have a place in it and position myself within it, but also while at the same time being subjected to those um, structures of power that are within that discourse, right? So, um, so think about um, the, the kind of spaces that we associate, whether it is you know, a, a, a servant's quarters in, in Haburoni or it is someone's middle, um, uh, middle class uh, house, you know, someone sitting in their living room uh, or one room shack or, or what have you. Um, so I, I try to really think about, um, you know, trying to, to um, and I guess maybe this is why a lot of times my, the work is spread out through, for example, 15 or 20 panels is, you know, by spreading out the narrative, you know, my hope is that that subject can have the conceptual and intellectual and uh, representational space that they need to exist in that space, right? Because when, you know, if you look at a painting, for example, and it's just one painting, you know, everything in that painting becomes, is, is put under pressure, right? So if there's a candle, if there's an apple, if there's a, uh, a painting, uh, uh, or if there's a people sitting, so everything within that frame, within one painting, starts to acquire very specific uh, metaphorical value. You know, but if you take the narrative and you spread it out, you know, all of a sudden, a still life can just be a still life. A person sitting on a couch can just be a person sitting on a couch, right? So, mm. so there's a way in which, again, this is my my, um, uh, I don't know, maybe stupid way of thinking about things. But you know, but the, the idea of a narrative, when it's in the space to breathe, you know, metaphors do not um, compound each other so so easily. So, so I think. Um, you know, this idea of, of intimacy is, is a really important one, or even, you know, we can call it critical intimacy, where, you know, I've studied figurative painting for quite a long time, and I know what you need to do to create the skin tone for a black person, a skin tone for a white person, a skin tone for a person of Asian descent, and, and, right, you name it. So there's a level of um, intellectual intimacy that one needs to enter the discourse so that you can kind of, you know, be in it, and, and from there you can start to be critical of it and try to take it apart. Right. So, so I think, um, you know, this, this, you know, that 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 concept of of intimacy and intimate spaces is very broad, both literally and intellectually and conceptually. Um, and it is, it is this which I think. Um, no, I, I, I try to, to, to think about it because 
it is important to to reconcile the the spaces within which we are socialized. You know, um, a lot of us grow up with you know particular posters hanging up, whether it's a poster of Jesus or a poster of um, of Brenda Farsi or Yvonne Chakbachaka or you know if it's a ceramic dog or if it's um, you know those those doilies that that our our mothers and grandmothers buy at um, uh, at the street vendors. So it's it's like all of these objects becoming invested with intense emotional energy, and it's that energy that um, you know structures our uh, position within the world. Right? We 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 form identifications with these particular spaces, um, and and to me it's. It's important not to judge those spaces because I think in aesthetics, or at least in Western aesthetics, you know, people tend to say, "Oh, that's that's kitsch," or "That's that's you know that's cliche," or "That's not as meaningful as a Picasso." How many people grew up with a Picasso in their living room? We don't know, um, you know. But but I think that these spaces that we grow up with, um, you know, even Black Romanticism, right? We all have those those really weird posters of. I, you know, there's so many examples of, of how aesthetics plays a role in our lives, even mm-hmm. if we're working class or if we're middle class or upper class. Um, but you know, it's, it's the amount of meaning that we we kind of absorb from those and and, and you know bring into our lives. So I think you know, um, I mean, I, I kind of wanted to, I mean, not to to say. say um, too much of a segue from what we're talking about. I was I, I was thinking about um, this question of of opening up the space of representation when we think about the the, the politics and histories of blackness, right? right. And how um, thinking about the end game, right? That you know, it seems like different people have different end games, right? For some people, it is opacity, and for some people, it is it is um, it is the opposite of opacity, right? I mean, I'm I'm actually very interested in almost like the what you were talking about the aesthetics that we grew up with. I'm I'm thinking about the that mother and mother and child, the black Madonna, that we all sort of and I'm not sure. You know, it's almost like someone in the townships would find like a factory that makes these these po- these posters or frame posters and they'd literally like near in every second house there would be one of those um and i don't know if you know there's a there's a i think there are twins and then a third a, a third person so a trio called i see a different you they are based here in johannesburg they also have a photograph of a child which the photograph has had very different interpretations but it's a, a black child and the child is uh, is is gammon so you don't know whether they it's a it's a girl or a boy and you remember those metal bathtubs that we used to <laughs> so they're in that metal i think in that metal bathtub and then behind them is that uh, black madonna or mother and child uh framed image and it's a very beautiful image from my perspective but some people find it problematic because they say it's sort of like uh, poverty chic or whatever. And I think, well, I mean, this is when you were in that situation, like, you know, when you have to bath in a bathtub in a bathtub, because you're visiting your grandmother in the rural areas and she doesn't have a shower or, a, or the same bath that you have at home and you have to bath in a, in a, in a bathtub. You, at that time, you didn't feel any shame. You didn't feel that this was a sign of poverty. And so it's almost like in retrospect, people are looking at some or reimagining themselves in those situations, feeling emotions that were not there. 
So I was just wondering, so before we move on to, to something else, what, did, what do you think of that, of that? And you've used it, that mother and child and you've, you've sort of made a sort of painterly copy of it. I mean, is it because you are making that point about the aesthetics that we grew up around? Or do you actually like it? Do you like that image? I do. I, I, I both of those. I, 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 I find it compelling, you know, compositionally, um, you know, how it's posed and, and just kind of the, the care and the softness of it because, um, you know, it, it, it's, 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 again, it, 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 you know, it's, a, it's become a popular trope and, and even, um, you know, I think even in, in a video I saw like two or three years ago, you know, it comes up in a, in a, in quest in one of Questa's videos, right? Um, it, it, so, so I think it, it, it does. It's become a, a trope uh, that 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 speaks to um, you know, a very specific domestic space, um, which again I grew up around um, of these so what could be called like kitsch art, right? Uh, but I you know I find it it's, it's a compelling image of. Um, of care and and um, you know, but it it also it, it does it it doesn't do too much. It doesn't. It's not too overly performative like a lot of other images. But um, you know, so I, I so from that point of view, I do I do find it a compelling and a beautiful image. Um, and I do also want to to point back to those spaces you know that I grew up in where um, uh, again kind of to your point I mean that's how, that's how we grew up I mean we I, I grew up in a uh, in, you know in a, in a small in a small place in a, in a you know um, and you didn't have running water right so you had to you had to get water from the tap and boil it um, like or in the morning and and you know with with those steel um uh, steel buckets so you boil the water and you put it in um in the, in the bathtub and and you you know you bath outside you know and like there's no luxury of like having a bathroom right so right um you know and, and it's not so much like romanticizing it but it, it's it's a fact like that's that was my experience and i think um you know people's experiences uh, uh, are actually important to how we should understand even ideas of democracy, and I think this is what I've also looked to to someone like like Du Bois and and how he um, conceptualized the idea of democracy as as something where in which everyone's feelings and 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 desires and wishes and wants should be acknowledged and recognized. Um, and, and in some ways dealt with, right? But obviously that's an impossible ideal. But, but I think, you know, it's, if someone might say, oh, you know, you're being overly romantic, look at you, you're, you're a professor at Yale, and, um, you know, you don't need to do this. This is poverty porn. And I'm, it's, it's not poverty, it's, 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 it's an experience, right? It's, there's nothing wrong with, you know, stating that experience. Like when someone gives you an experience of middle class, you know, we don't say that is that is whiteness porn, right? It's it's right. whiteness, and 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 we and we see it as normative, and we move on, right? But if it's if it's not about whiteness, then it becomes so differentiated that it acquires a set of meanings that um, you know that that allow us not to actually look at the thing that that we we should be looking at, right? So. Um, so I think that that's one of the things where, you know, these experiences, these aesthetics, these um, these visual languages, you know, are, are, are trying to difference the, the aesthetics of whiteness. They're trying to difference and, and intervene with, um, you know, the, the conventions of how we think, you know, something is aesthetically pleasing because, you know, up until now, um, you know, we, we haven't been able to see different ways of, of appreciating, you know, beautiful things or meaningful things. So, um, you know, so for me, it's a meaningful experience. It's not necessarily a romantic one. I'm not playing the violin. It's not like, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm just like, this is an experience. It, you know, um, it should also be part of, of history. Um, and, 
and, and it's a conversation I, I had with with Smooth um, not so long ago, and, and he, you know, he made this this really uh, 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 wonderful comment that the images are also historical, right? So we should we shouldn't think of history as as just um, oral or, or or textual, but but images are also historical documents, and and we should allow ourselves that that you know um, that freedom to. You know, to kind of uh, uh, think about history and in historicize history through images. Right, right. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely, um, um, I, I would definitely agree with that. Especially since you know, I'm just as an aside because I'm also trying to finish a book that um, deals with the history of the of the policeman and the way in which African policemen have, were photographed in the 19th century. And so when you have to deal with those images, you realize just how much, how much of our, how, how many mistaken ideas you can get if you just see one image. But once you see 20 of them, then you start to see a genre emerging. You're like, oh, there's actually like, something like a commonality between all these different images. People were not just photographing these men accidentally. There was actually a lot of desire behind the images, a lot of intent, a lot of framing, a lot of um, playing around essentially, where you would see the same person in another photograph, but with totally different poses and totally different positions within the photograph and you're like but these are the same people why did the photographer take two different pictures so i think that idea that um photography is a historical docu documenting process but also that a photograph itself can exist in different histories simultaneously i think is a very very powerful um understanding but also exactly this understanding of our our own aesthetic education, which wasn't pointed at at the time. Nobody pointed at that Madonna and child and said, this is your aesthetic education. You know, no one would point at a Trechikov, for example, which Trechikov is an example of someone whose images were very, very popular with black people. Um, and nobody would point it to you and say, well, this is an artistic work. Somehow, it made your space beautiful without you, no one pointing it out to you. And I think that's sometimes the yeah. difference, the difference between what one would call a middle class or upper class um, upbringing, where maybe things are pointed out to you so that you like them, not because there's some visceral connection, but simply because someone pointed out to you that, oh, you know, this is a Picasso um, and Picasso was a great artist. And so, whether you like it or not, you sort of grow up with that image. I think we had to choose what we thought was beautiful because no one was tutoring us and telling us what is beautiful and what is not beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I think also that, that was another element to it. Um, um, you know, was, was having that freedom to, to not be uh, you know, confined to a specific idea of what, what something was beautiful. I think there was also a kind of making do with what you had, right? So, so I think there, there were ways in which, um, you know, if, if, for example, you know, you came up, you were walking down the street and you came up with something that seemed um, not so useful, like, like a pile of tiles, right? So, so some people would take that pile of tiles and they would create a, a mosaic. Um, and that mosaic would, would, would kind of adorn um, the, the stoop of, of someone or veranda, right? So, so I think there was, um, a, a, you know, in, in kind of part, in, in line with what, you, what you're saying, which I think is really, really important of not being held on by specific conventions of what is pleasurable um, uh, in terms of aesthetics is, is also it allowed you the freedom to make do with what you had and um, which, you know which I think is really important but but it kind of maybe just add on one last comment with with the poster um, I think that there, there has been and maybe someone needs to more into this within the, the African context because I know um, 
you know, Huey Copeland and, and, and Krista Thompson, you know, they came up with, not so not so long ago, they came up with this idea of the Afrotrope. Um, and, and the Afrotrope as something which points to, um, you know, reoccurring visual forms that, that, that emerge and re-emerge. Um, and so, for example, you know, like an Afrotrope would be like the, you know, like the, those slave ship diagrams that have been used by many artists. Right. Um, you know that with which kind of reoccur and i think the same i would say for for something like the shelfville massacre photograph that that has been kind of uh emerged and re-emerged and, and recontextualized in different ways so i think there's a way in which something like you know this this poster of the, of the mother and child or even like um the steve beaker posters or, or a specific kind of winnie mandela posters and, and other visual materials i think there's a way in which the, the Afrotrope functions within the the African context um, that I think you know needs some close examination because I think it is it's a meaningful way in which artists are trying to re-examine and re-narrate very specific stories and, and kind of to your point of looking at how police police officers had been documented like this is a, 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 a re interpretation or reinscribing or re-examination of these this visual uh, uh, you know, material to kind of you know rethink um, uh, and in, in many ways I guess rehistoricize it so so I think kind of just to that point, I think the Afrotrope would be uh, something important again I, I don't know that much about it but you know maybe some academic one day will, will do it <laughs> I like the way that you you pass the ball onto onto academics because as a professor at Yale you are also now part of the club you can't uh, you can't escape <laughs> you can't take the the uh, the yeah the sort of uh, escape hatch and say yeah, no 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 you are the academics i'm not um so it's worth a try. It's worth a try. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know the other one that uh, the, the other topic or the other issue that I, or visual narrative that I was interested in was the way that you use um, Sitswana folk tales and legends as a sort of narrative. So I think maybe that's one of those maybe that refers back to the idea of opacity, because. If I remember clearly, they are never really fully translated in 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 the exhibition itself. I think you you sort of write the story and somehow the reader is just supposed to see the story and if they do speak Sitswana then they would obviously identify the story when they read it. But I mean I was interested in, in your experience. I'm I'm supposing that you also went to school when it was still called vernacular. And so that relationship with this, this thing that we were taught as, as our vernacular and the way in which folk tales would sort of exist in two worlds, you know, the folk tales that your, or the legends that your grandparents would tell you and then the ones that you would read about in school. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what your experience was. How would you think about um, yeah, how? Yeah, it, it's totally, and, and, and um, yeah, I, I think my the, the way they're presented. So, so first, I can maybe to give some some background the process. So the the um, you know the the done with with bleach on portrait linen. So, and portrait linen is a kind of a smooth. Um, slightly darker shade of, of fabric than than um, cotton canvas. So so I basically take um, I use bleach to to create these um, these things and, and and I wanted to to use a reductive form of of mark making. So um, and it it, it it took me some time to develop the the process, but um, I had to create like a you know a very big big. Um, because after I, I write with bleach on, on these these uh, big panels, I have to neutralize it with um, with hydrogen peroxide a solution, which neutralizes the bleach, so it doesn't keep eating into the fabric. 
Um, but I wanted to, to kind of create uh, a reductive way of mud making, which, which um, you know, would bite into the actual fabric and not be an additive mark on top of the fabric, right? So, mm. so kind of maybe to, to talk a bit about um, some of, some of the, the, the process there. Um, and, and yeah, the, 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 the stories are, um, are, are kind of specific forms. They're called mainane. And, and, and mainane uh, or jinane is, is, is a form of, they're not really uh, parables, but, but they're kind of parables, but they also don't always have like a, a, a moral story, story um, to, to give. Sometimes they're for entertainment uh, um, purposes, but sometimes it is a moral, uh, you know, uh, lesson to be taught. And, and I wanted to use these abstract metaphorical, you know, stories to, I guess, as as as, a, as an instrument for for abstracting knowledge, right? Or an instrument for creating different kinds of knowledge, right? Instead of using other kinds like Cinderella or Jack and the Beanstalk or you know uh, uh, you know Beauty and the Beast. You know, I wanted to say, actually, where, where some of us grew up, there were these other narrative stories that were used to construct an abstract, an abstract knowledge in very particular ways. Um, and I didn't want to translate them. Um, and instead of doing that, I basically, you know, they were mainly shown in museums. So I would work with a museum um, who would um, videotape uh, either docents or students in, in, in a college um, telling the story. So basically I would put the story up in the museum, then I would meet with four or five students. I would tell them the story um, and then I would explain to them what I thought in English and then they would retell the story in English. Um, and, and what I wanted to do was, I didn't want them to do like a one-to-one translation of it. I just wanted them to, to retell their version of the story with the kind of texture that they had, in, you know, with the kind of, um, uh, you know, tonal range and emotional range. Because what I wanted to do was to communicate the, the emotional material that is that is part of language and this is again from my investment in psychoanalysis right because in psychoanalysis um there is a lot of of uh you know emotional content within language especially uh the voice Um, and you can always tell um you don't have to tell a story but when you're talking to someone you can always tell whether or not they want to engage with you and how they want to engage with you and you can never ever tell a story honestly if you're not invested in that story you can always tell like this person is really not in the step i think like if, if you're sitting around a fire and your uncle is telling a story you can always tell the, the emotional investment that your uncle has in that story right so so i wanted to kind of capture the the, the material and, and emotional content within language because um you know, you can tell from even like the, the um, whether it, it was the, the Soweto uprising, which had to do with with the, the uh, compelling specific schools to to use Afrikaans as a as a language of instruction or or tongue playing um, African languages and how they were used in different schools. Um, um, and also just my, my investment in, in Setswana, you know, the, the ways in which the language is, is really, really important to how people think about life and how they invest things into objects. And, and you can tell, you know, the moment you step up a plane when you come back home, you want to speak your native language. Um, and because there's a lot of emotional investment in that, right? even though it's, it's not really something you can rationalize or, or quantify. There is that, that, that kind of um, material in it. So, so I, yeah, I just wanted to kind of place within that, that um, 
exhibition space and within this space of aesthetics, the idea of a Setswana folk tale be as, as an instrument for the construction of knowledge uh, or the abstraction of knowledge, um, that it doesn't always have to be Anglophone or Western or Eurocentric. Um, and that, 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 that was, that was um, you know, really, really part of it. I don't know if this answers your question. Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, because I think also the it's it's about the fact that quite a lot of these stories are, in some ways, they, they require sort of a little bit of acting. They have to be performed in some ways. You know, it doesn't have to be a big thing. Um, like, I mean, when we were growing up, for example, you were not allowed to tell tales during the day. So... If the occasion arose where you have to tell tales during the day, you had to hold like a like a little tuft of your hair for the for the remainder of the tale. So it was like almost like a I don't know like a punishment for telling tales during the day. And you know the all the sort of intros that you that you do. I don't know if it's the same as in Zwada. You know if somebody doesn't just go. Let me tell you. A, a folk tale that you know in Zulu you say and the person answers Gozi and there's like a whole sort of interaction to introduce the story before the story actually starts as part of the of the performance. And so I was sort of interested in just how you you want to narrate that whole world as it were of sort of storytelling through those sort of printed um and enlarged um yeah, sort of more re- like textual um, um, enactment because as you the way that you describe it, the very process of creating the text is in itself a form of sort of print making. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and, yeah, and, and with with the, with how they were performed, I think you know in in, in my experience they were they were also at least. For me, they were never during the day. Um, it, I don't quite, un- I don't quite understand or know why, but there were there were many things that happened towards the end of the day, um, as as you know, things are slowing down, and, and obviously it was a, a form of entertainment um, for for young kids because we didn't have TV back then, right. um, or if you're in the, in the rural areas where there's no electricity, but it was it was a form of entertainment that came towards the end of the day and it was also uh, I think more more importantly it was intergenerational right it was it was the older generation which was engaging with a younger generation on, on this, this this kind of um, uh, in this kind of way so so I think it also involved uh, uh, a particular kind of intimacy right it wasn't um, overly performative but it was it was you know, it, it, it really involved like people sitting close to each other who knew each other well and, and would engage and commune with, with this um, with the story and um, and so forth. So it was yeah, it was it was it was a very, very particular kind of um, uh, intergenerational um, uh, uh, intimate exchange which um, you know, you, you don't really see a lot these days, at least due to my experience, you know, I, I don't even do that. I mean, I do different stuff with my kids. Uh, we, we mainly read a lot of books together, um, but I don't, it's not something that I know from memory, but you know, it was really, really incredible to see these these stories being told from memory. And, and they were also done in a very loving and performative way. Like the, the things that would be highlighted, the kinds of uh, you know voices that were that were used um, and, and different gestures, you know, you, you could there was just a level of care um, that that was that was visible. Like you know, I, I want to tell you this thing. I want to to communicate with you at this time of day and, and be with you. Right? It was it was it was a way of being present with um, uh, with with children. Um, I, I would say, at least that's how I felt as a child. Right. Um, and, and 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 with in the obviously that's not possible in the museum context, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, the, that was part of it as well. Is um, the refusal to translate it was a way of saying that you know sometimes there is content 
um, or, or, or knowledge that is not available to the Western audience. And, and I think um, that that opacity or that denial of, of entry is a way of, of hopefully creating reflexivity for, for the Western to kind of say to themselves that, hey, you know, perhaps I'm not the center of the world, right? Perhaps I am not the most important thing, right? Perhaps there are other cultural producers, other histories that should also share the space uh, with, with, with my own histories, right? So it was, it was a way of, of decentering the Eurocentric or Western um, audience who would not be able to, to read that narrative, right? So, so I think that, that was another part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think we've gone over an hour. I don't know if there's any anything else that you you particularly wanted to to mention uh, as part of your response to that text, but also um, as part of your of what maybe you're working on next. What what is what is coming for you? What is what is uh, inspiring you at the moment? Um, is there anything that you, you'd like to, to say about where you are now? <laughs> I don't know where I am, but I can, I can try and, uh, and maybe offer something. I mean, there, there, were, there were a lot of things that I, I really found um, compelling about, about the, the, you know, your response to the work. I think one, you know, having, have, you know, we didn't talk about this, but just growing up in the, in the 70s and 80s, um, and and the, that lack of um, awareness, at least on my part, growing up, um, you know, it's something that uh, I am still trying to to figure out and reconcile. But you know, I grew up in in Francistown in Maui, and um, and Francistown, as as many people know, is um, is close to the Zimbabwe border, and um, and the largest population there is is you know other Kalamanga and. Um, and, and one of the things that I'm trying to think about now is the kind of um, intergenerational violence that has been um, um, enacted on people who would not be identified as, as the dominant um, ethnic group in Botswana, right? So the um, so Basara and the Kalanga are two of those. Um, you know, and Kalanga, as, as I think they're the second largest um you know uh, uh, you know population um that are you know in, in botswana and even up until recently you know their language wasn't wasn't really that recognized and wasn't part of the dominant discourse um so, so i think that the things that i am still trying to reconcile in terms of you know because we tend to think of post-colonial as as the violence um, that has been enacted from outside by, by European empires and so forth, right? But we never think of the kinds of violences that are amongst each other, right? right? So, so I think for, for me, you know, trying to think about the history of the Basara and, and, the, and the history of the Kalanga people and um, the kind of physical and epistemological and emotional violence that has been directed towards them you know, again, as someone growing up in Francistown, you know, I, I was never aware of it. I mean, I was young, I was like five, six, you know, so I, this really, I think, you know, I didn't know it much, but, um, but even just growing up in, in, in gaps and, and around that area, it, it really never, you know, the, the thing that stood out was uh, the violence towards, um, you know, people from Zimbabwe and Zambia, but it wasn't, you know, people within the country, like, like the, um, the Basara as well, who have, you know, for hundreds of years been targeted by by other ethnic groups. So, so I think that that was just uh, another element which I, I was really happy you you picked up on. I mean, you picked up on in terms of Botswana as, as a as a place where um, a lot of people from whether it was Mozambique or South Africa would would come as as, as exiles. But you know, there was a, there was a lot of violence in the in the eighties. Uh, that that kind of filtered was filtered out. Um, so you know that's that's one thing. I don't quite know if that's an art project, but it's something that I'm intellectually and 
kind of personally trying to 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 figure out um, and um, and, and, and another one which I think you picked up on really well was was uh, what was the the relationship between animals and and, and the humans and and how um, you know, again the, the what happens to nature what happens to the environment what happens to to animals as as you know throughout history those are the first victims of some kind of imperial or colonial force right and then and then after that um as, as you so well says you know then comes the humans right? so so that's something that i am still thinking about and um, um and, you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm very, very to to connect with you and I'm really looking forward. I hope we can keep talking and and, and, and you know uh, um, and keep sharing ideas and, and I, I think we definitely share a, a reading list. Um, <laughs>